This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. I first met Eric Stover in San Francisco just hours before the NASL final in 2017. Yes, the championship game between the Cosmos and San Francisco Deltas that ultimately did become the NASL's final game. For now, and Eric and I get into that in this conversation. I've been fortunate to develop a super good relationship with Eric since then. Uh, We text often, we email, he introduces me to people, I introduce him to people. We're bros. But it took me a while to realize that Eric has a badass story of his own that is absolutely worth listening to. Now, before landing a job with New York Cosmos, Eric forged his own path in professional sports by spending time at Qualcomm in San Diego and then working with the New York Red Bulls. And without spoiling too much in this intro, I think that you are going to enjoy his stories about Thierry Henry and having to explain MLS to Red Bull owners in Austria. Eric is passionate about issues like solidarity payments and U.S. Soccer's lack of involvement in the international transfer market. And of course, he's passionate about seeing teams like the New York Cosmos and many others get on the field and merit their way to the top of the American soccer pyramid. And those are things that 343 is passionate about as well. Since 2009, 343 has been calling BS on a lot that happens inside of U.S. soccer. That's why I first gravitated towards 343. The second thing that reeled me in was an unprecedented educational experience that is still the only one of its kind, to my knowledge. The 343 Coaching Education Program gives you insider access, showing you exactly how a coach built a real team from the time they were nine years old until the players started to sign professional contracts as teenagers. What went into the making of back-to-back-to-back Surf Cup trophies when Surf Cup was at its peak? Well, take a look and see. What what type of uh, training did the American kids get before going head-to-head with the real FC Barcelona Academy? You can see that too. That and so much more is on full display and available for you to learn and study 24-7 inside of the 343 Coaching Membership Program. There are no actors, no scripts, no BS, no fluff. You get to see the real drills. You get to hear the real coaching points. And you get to see the real results on the field. So if you enjoy this podcast and if you enjoy the education that 343 provides in the free online course, the next step is waiting for you. You can find out more by visiting 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 34 and 3, coaching, all spelled out, dot com. All right. I hope that you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with New York Cosmos COO, Eric Stover. Do you want to do you want to start on record or off record? <laughs> Yeah, we can uh, get it fired up and get going. Okay, works cool. for me. All right, cool. I always, I always have my phone plugged in and recording right when it, right when people call, just so it gets like the dialing and the ringing because it's. I feel like it's kind of a cool, 
cool aspect, but I always get nervous because I, I don't know if people are comfortable with recording right off the bat. So I always try to ask. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's fine for me. All right, cool. Um, no, the call, the call three, she went, went, went really good. Um, uh, he, he opened up about, about a lot and I, I tried to get him to give me his perspective on, on the Rocco thing without, you know, without speaking on, on Rocco's behalf. I, I really tried to get him to talk about how he felt and, and right. provide his, his perspective. And, and that's kind of what I want to do with you as well Is is not, I, I don't want to make this all about, um, you know, the most recent, uh, release from, from Rocco, but, uh, I also, I also want to get a little bit about who you are in your past and, and then your perspective on, on why you think something like this is important and, and the ideas that, that you might have for the next, I don't know, 12, 18, 24 months for, for lower division American soccer as well. Sure. So let's do it whenever you're ready. (laughs) I'm ready. I'm ready. Um, let's, uh, let's start with who you are and, and why you're in the position that you're in, because I'm not even sure if I'm, I'm fully in tune with kind of how you got to the place that you're at now. Um, cause I know that you have, you have a lot of, um, I guess executive experience. Is that the, is that the right way to put it? Uh, well, a whole bunch. Well, just one horrible accident, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I got hit by the soccer train, and it's made a big mess. Um, well, I went to um, Florida State and then Penn State undergrad, and and at Penn State I realized that I um, wanted to get into sports, and I got a internship at on campus, a couple actually, and then um, – Got out of after I graduated. I got a job at the Meadowlands Sports Complex here in New Jersey, just outside of New York, um, uh, with the men's Final Four in 1996. So I'm I'm dating myself there. Um, <laughs> I was technically the first of a thousand volunteers for the men's Final Four. You know, everybody that uh, was at the airport to greet people, ran Fan Fest, all all of that kind of stuff, and. My first gig was to help recruit 999 other volunteers. Um, easy work, easy work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and then I, you know, I just sort of grew up at the Meadowlands. I learned a lot about the business um, from very capable, competent people that did everything from the three tenors to the Pope visit to uh, NFC and AFC championship games. It, men's final four circus racing grand prix i mean you name it we did it and dozens and dozens of concerts of course um and these guys and gals have had done so much and it was such a privilege to work there i put in about just shy of 10 years i was six months short of vesting um on my new jersey state pension um <laughs> But I knew I'd never get the six months, <laughs> so I had to cash it out. Um, and I, I took a job as uh, general manager of Qualcomm Stadium in San Diego. Uh, I was there about three years, and when I was there, Red Bull called. They had, they had just purchased the Metro Stars. Um, at the time, they were very bullish. God, that's a terrible pun, but on... <laughs> 
all of their investment in um, American soccer. Um, so not only were they going to build a stadium, but a training facility. They were going to recruit great players. Um, and Red Bull called and said they had heard about me and, and wanted me to come back to the New York metro area to help build the stadium and um, help with the team's front office. Um, and even though I hadn't worked in soccer, I had a pretty good relationship with MLS in U.S. soccer and CONCACAF people because we did so many events at at Giant Stadium. Um, and so it was kind of a natural fit. And I wanted to move into soccer because I believed very strongly that soccer in this country is going to pass hockey and, and baseball over time. Maybe not basketball, we'll see. Maybe not the NFL, we'll see. But I, I believe that that was the future of sport in the United States, and the Red Bull thing was an exciting opportunity. And um, when I I got the job, I was there about a month or two, and Mark de Grand Prix, who's back as the managing director, resigned at the time. So this was early 2008, um, and we we didn't have a leader, and we had sort of four or five senior executives that were running it. And eventually over a couple of months, they promoted me into the position. And um, that's when I got hit by the train and <laughs> there's body parts everywhere now. Um, <laughs> but it's been a, it's been a wonderful uh, 10 years, some ups and downs, of course, but done and seen a lot. And, and uh, t- tell me, tell me where you're at now. Yeah. Sorry. So, um, COO of the, the Cosmos. I've um, been in this position for over five and a half years now, uh, I believe. And, you know, I was, I was hired. I was the third or fourth employee. The Cosmos had come in with a, the, the rebirth of the Cosmos had come in with a, a lot of noise. Um, and they burned through a lot of money in a short amount of time. Um, and there was really nothing to show for it. And uh, a new investor came in, Seamus O'Brien. Um, he he downsized everything, uh, went about partnering with the NASL to try to get the NASL going. At the time, it was very much a fledgling league, a spinoff of USL at the time. And USL at the time was a mess of teams coming in and folding within six months, nine months. Um, and the idea was to take the NASL to a, a new level, and uh, Seamus hired me to come in and, and run it and, and report to him. And at the time, this was October of 2012, um, you know, we had nine months or less to field a team and start playing and win championships. Um, and it's been a... There's been a lot of amazing accomplishments, but it's been a very difficult road as well. Tell me about your first few weeks or maybe a few months with New York Red Bulls. You're coming in as somebody that has, you know, a, a massive amount of experience working in, you know, a professional capacity with athletes and owners and investors and events and of you know massive scale but not necessarily soccer experience so what what were the first few months or few weeks like for you to kind of get 
yourself uh, or to kind of get your bearings in a soccer sense. Do you remember anything that stood out to you? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, it was so overwhelming, Um, you know, as a fan of sports and people like to second guess the president or the general manager on, on whatever decisions are made. And you think to yourself, if I was in that seat, I would do A, B, or C. Or as somebody working in the business, why did this guy or gal do this? It doesn't make any sense. If I was there, I would do this. As soon as you would sit behind that big desk, it is so overwhelming. Um, people are coming at you from every direction. Uh, God forbid you ever read mentions on social media. Um, <laughs> that, that'll... That'll demoralize you pretty quickly. Um, And you spend so much time dealing with other people's problems, Um, everything from the mundane to the personal, um, and focusing on strategy. Uh, It it just feels, uh, those first few weeks, it feels like drinking from a fire hose. You just can't keep your your head about you. Um, And then what was... I guess trial by fire for me, so much happened at Red Bull when I took over. Uh, Admittedly, not a soccer guy. I've never claimed to be. I've spent the last 10 years studying, 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 and it's the only thing I really watch anymore other than Penn State football and basketball. But um, it, it, what I needed was a smooth transition. And unfortunately we didn't have it. A lot of executives left with Mark. Um, so our front office was in a bit of turmoil. Um, we had a lot happen. Let's see if I could put it all in proper order. Um, we sold Josie out the door pretty quickly, um, via real came and, um, they offered a fee via MLS that still has, the record for transfer fee in the United States for an American player. Um, and I had to make that decision, make that recommendation for Red Bull, if we should take it or not. Uh, and we did, um, it was clearly as good as we were, we were going to get and a great opportunity for Josie too to go play in Spain. Um, and soon after that, see Claudio Reyna had, had been, he was one of our designated players and Claudio got hurt. And he came to me and said, you know, and the head coach came to me as well, Juan Carlos Osorio. And they both basically said that time was up for Claudio. Claudio didn't want to go through the pain that he needed to go through to get back on the field. And that's understandable, you know, when you're you're looking at that. When you know you're going to retire in a few months, um, I, you know, to make the decision that let's let's just do it now. Um, instead of having surgeries and cortisone shots and playing on the horrible turf at, at Giant Stadium. Um, <laughs> so many people so are going to relate up, to that right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I've seen some surfaces in my career, uh, no doubt. But um, so Claudio needed to make that tough decision at a fight with MLS to try to get another designated player in. Uh, they didn't have that role at the time. Um, it was the, in the infancy of the designated player rule, and we weren't allowed to uh, replace him. They now have a rule. Um, so many things I've done in my career have like created, you know, policy or set a record. Josie's transfer, and then you know we wanted to replace um, Claudio, and they wouldn't allow it. And then the next year, they uh, MLS passed a uh, 
play a rule that you could write off one contract, whether it was a designated player or anything, and replace that player. Um, so that rule's now now in place, but we weren't able to do it at that time. Um, so we lost on paper our two best players pretty quickly after me taking over the job. Uh, at the same time, I started discussions and negotiations with uh, Darren Dean, Thierry Henry's representative. Um, you may know the name. His father was uh, vice chairman of Arsenal and really the architect of the Premier League. Um, and Darren's become a, well, a really good friend of mine, but also uh, he was just getting into player representation at the time. And now he's one of the, the biggest um, guys in the business with loads of players like Seth Fabregas and many others. Um, but anyway, started meeting with, with Darren and we're talking about long-term and the designated player rule. And it was, you know, for me, I was a stadium guy. I was brought in to help build Red Bull Arena, um, not negotiate transfer for arguably the second most important player ever to play in MLS. Uh, so that was a bit overwhelming. Uh, and then we played Barcelona that year. Um, and soon after that, uh, we had two players get suspended for performance-enhancing drugs. Um, Over-the-counter stuff, they weren't taking steroids, and it just you know, had something in it that, that uh, they're not supposed to have in their system. And it was carelessness, not any effort at cheating. But MLS it didn't have any rules for how to handle it. And those guys played for like six weeks knowing that they were going to be suspended while they, while they, um, um, while they were appealing. And we knew nothing about it. And we, we tanked during that time. So we had, um, you know, like six weeks. We were a decent team. And suddenly we, we lost like four or five in a row. And um, then I find out that two of, two of our starters um, were about to be suspended. And, you know, I knew from other sports how that those things were handled, and they're handled by a collective bargaining agreement. And there was always an executive at a team if a player got was going to get suspended that you knew about it. So you could make player personnel decisions. Well, MLS didn't have any rules at the time. And, and when I think it was Ivan Gazidis that called me about it, told me, I, I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? And they basically said, it's up to you. There aren't any rules on how you handle this. Um, so I talked to a bunch of my NFL guys and um, kind of followed their CBA. And, and we told the players they weren't allowed because they were suspended for the rest of the year, that they weren't allowed at any of our facilities um, that uh, we had to move on without them at least one of those players was going to Europe anyway um, the, the next season. Um, so, you know, I got a lot of heat in the, in, from those two players about basically kicking them out. But, um, you know, we had to move on. We had to finish the season and had to make a tough decision. Um, and as luck would have it, things turned around. We started playing better, got really hot in the playoffs, and we went to – um, MLS Cup. So all of those things happened within the first six months of me taking over this role. And like I said, it was really trial by fire. And um, I had a lot to learn in a short amount of time in a very chaotic situation. 
What did your support team look like at that point? Because you said, if I remember right, that when the the previous executive left, a lot of the other staff or, or support team left with him. So what were you kind of left with? And and the reason why I'm asking is because you you admitted that you're at that time not a soccer guy. So how are you able to make all these soccer decisions? If, if you're not a soccer guy and then the front office basically just vanished in front of you as well. Well, I think, uh, well, we didn't lose that much of the front office. We lost, uh, mostly marketing people. Um, three or four folks went, uh, but you know, that had an effect on the morale too. Um, so that was something we had to deal with. You sort of had to stabilize the ship. You know, people were, were nervous and, and, I think to this day, a lot of soccer teams in this country have a lot of young kids working there. And at the time, I was I was young too. Um, so, you know, it, it, people get nervous, and you, you have to manage that. And that's part of what I was saying about dealing with personal and mundane things uh, most of the day, and not really doing strategy. But in the front office, we had. Um, uh, Jeff Agos was the general manager. Uh, it was tough on Jeff too because he had recently retired as a player. So that transition from player to front office person is not easy. The relationship player to player, player to general manager can often be very strained uh, because you go from a teammate to a boss. Uh, but Jeff was was a great guy, and I I consider him still uh, a close friend and. Um, you know, we, we went to through a lot of battles together. And that next year in Red Bull, things went horribly wrong. And, you know, we were car- called on the carpet a lot, had to travel to Austria, the two of us, to, to manage things and explain how MLS works and how we're, our hands were tied with a lot of things. Ah, that's uh, interesting. So Jeff, that's a very interesting point. I, maybe we can come back to that, but keep going. Yeah, yeah, let, let's come back to it. Um, but it is a, it is a good point. Um, but uh, Jeff was a great guy, and he was working his tail off. Um, Juan Carlos Osorio was the head coach, um, you know, and that was a unique dynamic and hard to manage. And um, it was okay in in 2008 because we were winning. It it was not okay in nine when when the wheels fell off. Um, in the front office, uh, our head of marketing was Andrew Lafioska. Andrew's a good guy. He's a Red Bull guy. Came up from the grassroots of Red Bull, the energy drink. Um, and what I really liked about Andrew is, is we disagreed on almost everything. <laughs> so we we fought about this stuff, and we would sometimes he would win, sometimes I would win, and we would try to get to a decision that was in the best interest of um, of the team. And I, I kind of liked that dynamic. It was frustrating at times, but you know he had a strong opinion, and and I valued it. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to bore, bore everybody with the rest of the front office, but, you know, we had a decent amount of experience in, in PR and communications, um, on the sales side. So it, it wasn't like I was doing the job by myself far from it. Um, it was just, was a lot, you know, the one thing we haven't even mentioned was we were building a, a stadium at the time and arguably still the best American soccer stadium, um, so there was just what I needed when I, when I took over that job was for the soccer side to go well. And, you know, most of the stuff I've already mentioned was kind of management decisions, you know, 
are you going to sell a player for $8 million or not? I mean, that's a management decision. That's not necessarily a player personnel decision. Um, it's a business decision. So um, those things were, were relatively easy. It got harder the next year when the locker room fractured and, and the coach and the general manager were not on the same page. Um, and that's, like I said before, definitely not what I needed. I needed those guys to to carry the, the soccer responsibility. One of the most interesting things, and I still want to come back to your, your dealings in Austria, but before this thought leaves my mind, uh, I want to make sure I get this out there, that one of the more interesting things to me is that transition moment that you mentioned that, that Jeff Agus had from player to retired player to uh, uh, yeah director or general manager or, or some capacity like that, because that seems to be very common throughout major league soccer. And I think if you look at the, at, at, you know, the greater soccer picture that, you know, retired players tend to kind of land somewhere, somewhere in the, the soccer um, executive or governance landscape somehow. But I, I think in MLS, it's, it's a special case. And you can look at the way, well, I, I think back to my interview with Brian Dunseth and he talked about how Alexi Lawless was, you know, kind of managing him at LA galaxy, through the end of his own career. So Brian Dunseth was, you know, ending his career as Alexi Lawless was starting his management career. You look at Galaxy now with, you know, Chris Klein and, and Pete and and guys like that. And and you just kind of see that happening all over the league. And you get these guys that don't really have business experience at all. And they're they're coming off of, you know, playing careers that for a lot of these guys, I have to imagine, you know, they they've lasted many 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 years and they haven't really had uh, this is going to sound terrible right they haven't really had real jobs so all of a sudden all of a sudden they're in charge of you know multi-million dollar decisions and and you know player management and all kinds of stuff and that that's difficult for anybody let alone somebody that hasn't really had any experience with running a business in general so it's it's something that I think we want more of. Like we obviously want soccer people involved in, in those types of decisions, but at the same time, it's like, you can't leave those types of decisions up to people that have never made those types of decisions before. So it's a weird balancing act that you have to figure out. And it sounds like your case especially was, was super special in the, in, in the event that, you know, there was just a lot of turmoil happening on, on many different fronts. And it's like, you guys are putting out fires left and right almost. Yeah, yeah, that was just unfortunate timing. You know, it's just the way all of it came together. And um, But to answer your question a little more uh, specifically, there, I've seen a lot of examples. Like Luke Sassano, for, for one example, we hired him as technical director uh, at the Cosmos uh, five years ago before we started playing in 2013. Um, and we had done an exhaust exhaustive search for a technical director with experience so somebody that had had could you know he had the strength of being able to stand on the field and say that player is good that player is probably too good and too expensive that player can't play on this level so he was able he he was going to be able to do that um smart guy capable good player um but he didn't necessarily have the negotiating contracts experience or understanding contracts or managing a budget or being accountable for a budget. But um, 
Luke had the intelligence to do it. So um, what Gio and I decided to do was give him a shot. You know, we needed a person in the seat. We couldn't find anybody that had that experience that made sense for us to hire at the, the budget that we had. And, and Luke had gone to a good school. He'd played at Red Bull when I was there. He was a, a rookie and did very well on the field. Unfortunately, he had to retire early because of injuries. And we took the what we knew we had with him and we said, um, all right, well, you know, you'll help him on more of the locker room team management side of things and he'll be your right-hand man on uh, following up on player recruitment stuff and then I'll help him with the budget stuff and uh, negotiations and and dealing with the board and etc and you know he'd come to either one of us depending on what the issue was to to the point where you know he knew exactly what he was doing and taking his own initiative and that's the case, I think, for any executive anywhere. Nobody has a perfect resume. They always have holes in it, uh, weaknesses. Every person has weaknesses, some more than others. And if you're in a management situation, you need to identify those things and, and balance those things and, and fill in the holes that you have. Uh, for, for players that have made the transition, I've dealt with some that really struggled, that couldn't put business first, now that they were in a business position, you know, complaining about, I don't know, a lunch menu or travel accommodations when in the NASL, we're the only team that was providing lunch for the team <laughs> um, just because it was grilled chicken two days in a row. As management, you should be managing the locker room, not, um, not complaining about it to me. So some guys still have that player mentality and it takes a while to shake it off um and some guys uh can can slide into it easier i think it's like any um like i said before like any strength and weakness in business um and i think the most successful people know what their weaknesses are and they work on them let's go back to that moment that you mentioned when you had to fly back to austria and explain mls to Red Bull upper <laughs> upper management. I'm I'm really curious about what that conversation consisted of. Yeah, you know, the that relationship's been difficult and in MetroStars Red Bulls up until the last couple of years, the turnover of the organization was constant. Uh whether it was on the the soccer side or in the front office or in sales or whatever, constant turnover. And when you have that, I mean, it's just business 101, you, you, you're wasting money, you're wasting experience, you don't have institutional knowledge that, oh, we tried this and it didn't work before, here's why. Um, and so I think that organization has really, really struggled with, with that for the first 15, 16 years, the last, or, or maybe a little longer, um, the last couple of years, Mark's come back. They've had uh, Jesse as the head coach. Um, the global football folks have been the same for a few years. And it, it, under Red Bull's tenure, the, glo- the person in charge of global football was changing like every nine months. Uh, but now the folks they have in place have been in place for a while, and they've done an incredible job to take 
Leipzig from the fourth division all the way up to second place last season in the Bundesliga. I mean, it's just remarkable. Uh, so they have they have good people there and a little more stability. I think on the business side, Mark's providing stability there. Um, so th- those things are, are critical. But going to Austria, it, it is a very unique set of circumstances because they're not there. It's a ownership in absentia. That doesn't mean that Matischitz isn't paying attention. He does. But it's a unique market in MLS has a unique set of rules and the, the Austrian guard, you know, the people in charge, the board members, none of them ever attended any MLS board of governors meetings. I don't know what the, what's happening now, what's been happening the last four or five years. I I don't know. Um, But so those unique rules, when um, things start going wrong and you can't replace players and you have a salary cap and all these crazy rules, um, you know, just trying to explain that stuff to them and not sounding like uh, you're just making excuses is, is difficult. So for me, managing the, the Austrian board, uh, which was the board for, for an energy, energy drink was very difficult. Again, in the middle of everything that was going on, building a, stadium, trying to build a training facility, uh, Thierry Henry coming in, Rafa Marquez coming in, um, you know, all the things that were happening and, and people that didn't understand the, the, the U S market in, in MLS, uh, it was not easy. And especially, um, doing it a couple times a year. Like I, I, I think if I could go back and do anything different, I would have had a, a better regular dialogue with Mr. Matischitz, um to ensure that uh, we were on the same page and he understood what was going on. The question that I had kind of brewing in my brain, you you almost answered, but it was, I was going to ask, did they just not understand what they were getting themselves into with MLS? And I don't mean that in like a, a derogatory way. It's just like, there are a very there's a very nuanced set of rules to MLS that isn't like Bundesliga or isn't like the tiered system in Germany. So did, did they just not fully grasp what what they were kind of getting themselves into at, at one point? Um, I think there was a little bit of hubris. I think they thought uh, because you got to remember when they bought the team. Uh, experts had valued the Metro stars at a million dollars. So this one was 2006, right? And they ended up paying a lot more than that. And, you know, they don't get enough credit for jumpstarting the, the MLS expansion fee, uh, escalation the way it has, because they paid 20. Um, I, I think largely because, um, they could, and, you know, they just wanted to get the transaction over with and 20 became, I think 30 for Toronto. And then it was 40, then it was 60 and it, it just kicked its way up. Um, but I, I do think Red Bull thought that with their, their marketing strength and, and with their, um, you know, the, their unique perspective on things and the money they were going to spend that it would all work. Um, and some of it did, but, you know, during my time, there wasn't enough buy-in on the drink side of things. So 
we'd get some things going, some co-promotion stuff, and then they'd it, it'd stop. And um, so, you know, getting complete buy-in from everybody um, was was difficult. And then when you have a superstar like Thierry Henry and um, the head of Red Bull France calls and demands something, and then that that when you say that can't happen, then you get a phone call from Mattachitz. You know, these things start to be a distraction instead of, um, you know, being what it's supposed to be about. So it's a, it's a difficult organization to work with. And that's why I think the stability that Mark brings, the 20 years of experience that he has with Red Bull is, has helped a lot. And then when you're not turning people over all the time, then you, you learn how, you know, there, there's this pitfall there. It's covered with leaves and, and sticks. And if you're not paying attention, you're going to fall into it. Once you know that that's there, then you don't, you don't fall into it. You figure out how to avoid um, problems. So um, I think they respected MLS and they respected the rules and they knew they, that um, it wasn't um, going to be so easy to fix things that weren't working. It wasn't going to happen as quickly as they, they liked it. And they had, would have liked, and they had patience for it. Um, but when they're not there, when you're, and, and I believe this in all sports, when you have an absentee owner or, um, you know, your owner is just maybe there but not paying attention or doesn't care, that leads to dis- dysfunction within an organization. And there's reasons some some teams win championships all the time and, and some never get close, and it normally starts at the top. That leads to a very... Uh frequently brought up topic by Rocco and maybe we can transition into more of like what's been happening with you lately but but that's actually been something that Rocco has brought up to me every single time that I've talked to him is that he is an American guy a New Yorker that's involved that is there that wants to be part of the decision-making processes and and he he highlights that every single time I talk to him and the example that he gives I think every single time is you know his cross city rivals the um New York City FC, where it's like those those owners, they're they're not Americans. They're they're not here. They don't you know they don't understand the league. They they don't understand the country, the you know the little nuances and and Rocco does, and so it, it seems like you've been over the course of the last ten years, with the maybe exception. I I don't know what your experience was like when when Cosmos first started. So maybe you can maybe fill in that gap. But two kind of polar opposites, where you have an owner that's very disconnected and somebody that you're trying to educate along the way versus Rocco, who's very, very involved. So I'm, I'm curious uh, your thoughts about those two different situations. <laughs> yeah, it, it's two very different situations. So at Red Bull and then with Seamus, Seamus wasn't in New York a lot. So for those two organizations, I ended up being the face, the spokesperson. I had fans when I was at Red Bull, <laughs> thought that I was the, the owner, um, you know, be walking the concourse and they'd say things like, you know, I don't own this team. I, I'm just a worker bee. <laughs> I, it, you know, it's, um, so that's, that's hard. That it is very hard to be, um, in that position. Um, it's very different with, with Rocco for, for sure. He, um, he has the respect of so many business people around the world, um, and throughout the United States and in New York. So, um, you know, when he makes a phone call, suddenly a 
a sponsorship deal that we're negotiating, um, it gets a little bit easier. Those things are, are really essential. And I think when you see teams that have done really well in a sport in a particular market, a lot of times it's because you have an owner that's there and is engaged. So when Rocco's criticizing that, I mean, it comes from a very real place. That does matter. Um, it, you know, it, it doesn't guarantee success, but it certainly helps. It helps on the business side and it helps on the sporting side. Um, if the owner of a team is in a market and is engaged and is respected. Uh, and he definitely brings that, that to us. And we were having a lot of success. We were moving the needle in Brooklyn. Um, you know, things got lean in, in Long Island after a while. Uh, it was a tough last minute transition to Brooklyn, but we were, we were making progress. And I think a big part of his frustration was, you know, I told you, U.S. soccer that I'm going to come in and, I, and I'm going to make a difference here. Just give me time. And he felt he had a, had assurances that he would get the time to make a difference and help the Cosmos and, and the NASL grow. And then the, the rug was pulled out from underneath him. And so I absolutely appreciate his, his frustration over that. The the thing I told Rishi was that I I, I don't expect you guys to speak on on Rocco's behalf. I, I've I've had the pleasure of interviewing Rocco and getting his opinions, you know, straight from the horse's mouth. But um, if you could provide yeah your your opinions on certain things, and and I, I would love it. And one of the one of the things that you kind of just mentioned was the rug got pulled out from underneath them, and so. I'd be curious to get your perspective or the way that, that you operated during that month of, or the, that window from January to September, I believe in 2017, where Rocco comes in and uh, was it December, 2016 that Rocco purchased the cosmos? No, he didn't close until January of 17. Okay. So perfect. So, so he comes in in January and then I think that there was like a, a, a point in September when that rug, like, legit got pulled out from underneath him so Rocco went to a meeting and the way that he described it was you know he he was put he was put in this waiting or this holding room no coffee no water nothing offered to him right and the, he tells the story much better than I do but at, <laughs> at, at the end of the day he finds out that he was losing his or the league was losing its sanctioning which uh, ultimately led to the league folding and, and almost losing you know his team I, I would assume so I'm I'm curious if there were any warning signs that you guys saw in that January to September window and, and what kind of led up to that rug being pulled out from underneath them and, and how how did you handle all of that that happened with you know Rocco being so vocal and and, and that time being so turbulent and you guys as as Cosmos being actually kind of aggressive back to, to USSF. I'm just curious your your perspective uh, on all that. Yeah. <laughs> it's been it's a, what a what a weird what a weird question to ask too. Sorry, there's like five yeah, million no, questions. No, no, it's a really it's a really good one and and I don't think people stop to ask these questions enough and think about this stuff enough. Some people do. I when I say people I mean um angry trolls on Twitter, I guess. <laughs> um and, and maybe they get lost in how something's said and not what's actually said too often. Uh, but, you know, we spent most of 17, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, most of 17 trying to figure out how to make this better. 
how do we keep growing thing uh growing our fan base uh what can we do to improve tv uh is there a site for us to build a stadium if so what kind who can we partner with uh it was all about the future um and trying to get the team back to doing business as usual and not managing um you know doomsday scenarios so um so you know we were we were very focused on that we knew that the application wasn't perfect um but we felt that you know with Ricardo Silva Robert Palmer coming in buying a team two new expansion teams on the precipice numerous conversations ongoing and Rocco's overall commitment to you know there's real money here that that would carry the day um and that you would expect U.S. soccer's primary mission is to grow the sport would not take the extreme step of saying, you know what, we're not going to part. We're not going to accept what you guys have to say. We're not going to give you some leeway to help you grow the sport uh, that we're going to pull the rug out from under you. And by the way, you have no right to appeal. Um, None of that made sense. None of that, especially in light of how, the USL got a very different set of messages, even though they, they required a whole lot of waivers. Um, you know, it just didn't seem fair. And, and what I hope people understand and that they pay attention to is the mission of us soccer is to help grow the sport. That, that that's job number one. And you have millionaires, billionaires that are willing to do that, that are, that are willing to invest in the sport, that are willing to create opportunities, which, by the way, they're not going to get a return on this. They're not going to make money. Their assets not going to appreciate, not under the system we have now, but they're willing to do it. You should say, all right, you have these challenges, A, B, and C. We're going to work with you to fix these. And instead, it's just go away and and basically don't come back, because um, you know the all we were given the opportunity for was to reapply as third division, um, and you know you can't knowingly have the whole league relegated without any of the problems that led you to be in this situation being fixed, and then signing up for more of that. Um, so. It caught us all off guard. I was on vacation with my family. Um, I had the U.S. national team game on TV, watching it, um, getting embarrassed by Costa Rica. And I got a phone call from Brian Malecki in the league, COO, saying that we didn't, that we were denied. And I, I couldn't believe it. Not that I, I thought that everything was perfect in the NASL, but we were moving towards fixing things and you would expect that the federation would want to help that um, not put an end to it. One of the things that's super interesting about, you know, Rocco coming in, Ricardo coming in, Robert Palmer coming in and, and these guys kind of injecting new life and new money and new ideas to the situation. Those weren't necessarily expansion teams, right? So it's like, yeah, there's, there's new voices and, and new people involved, but they weren't expansion teams. And the reason why I bring this up is, that the MLS model is really fueled by expansion. But the the real reason I bring it up is that is that they see the benefit of bringing in new people and new investors and new money and that kind of pumps new life into MLS, you know, every year, or two years or three years, however often they're they're kind of 
doing that. LAFC being an example this year and, and Atlanta United last year. And so for, for an organization like MLS and for a governing body like U.S. Soccer to know that those are good moves to make to bring new people to the table and to let those ideas and, and, and everything have time to kind of flourish, for them to not recognize that this was really the same thing it just, you know, it wasn't adding another piece of the puzzle. It was fixing the existing pieces of the puzzle. That, that to me really blows my mind that nobody viewed it through that, through that lens. And I think if I'm not mistaken, that's how you guys were viewing it. It's it, you, not necessarily expansion, but you guys were fixing things, right? Yeah. For, for the cosmos, for sure. Um, I think I, I can't speak for Rishi or anybody at the league. Um, so, so I shouldn't, but yeah, I mean, we were setting about to right the ship. Our our stadium plan um, at Belmont, $400 million mixed-use development, wasn't going to happen. Um, there, I have my opinions on why that was the case. Certainly, corrupt government is part of it. Um, but, you know, Rocco didn't want to give up on that. Not, not that he was – he had a different vision. He had, well, let, let's build smaller – and grow let you know we that ship has already sailed uh, it was a good idea but um you know under the circumstances this league's in now and where we are now that we need to be a little more modest with our approach and let's let's talk about spending five or ten million dollars on a modular stadium that our fans can love uh so that that's what we were talking about we were talking about making the sport better and and um, when you add in the fact that Rocco is a cable guy and knows everybody in the cable industry, you would think that that would matter in, in to U.S. soccer in the United States because, quite frankly, our biggest problem for the sport in this country is TV, whether it's ratings or, or the revenue off of it um, or the cost of producing it. All of that is upside down. Um, and guys like Rocco could possibly help that. Same thing with, with Ricardo Silva. I mean, he's an international media rights guy that has made a lot of money and has very deep, very meaningful connections across the world. That's a, that's a guy you should be working with and not against. Um, so uh, to, to have it be you know, denied, sanctioning removed, no chance to appeal, um, and no, we're not going to help you in any way. Good luck with a, a reapplication. Um, it just wasn't the posture that that I personally, just me as a, a now a soccer guy, that I, I thought was productive for the sport in this country. Can I can I get your opinion on, on something that I've struggled to understand? And it has to do with the uh, lack of ability for you guys to appeal their decision. So it seems like appeals are in place because, or for for good reasons, right? Like people are able to appeal decisions and and to you know further their case for you know better understanding or for whatever reason, right? So for for them to say that there's no chance to appeal, I, two questions come to mind: ha, had had that ever been done before, to your knowledge, where you know a ruling had had been put down by U.S. Soccer and, and said, "Nope, like that, this is the final ruling. Nobody else can appeal." So that's always my first question I think about, and I've never asked that out loud before. Um, 
And then my my second thing that I, I frequently think about is how how demoralizing was that to the league? Like what like what do you guys do? Like you guys just all kind of just stand in a room and stare at each other and be like, oh well, I guess we're we're done. Like what what else can we do? So those are those are two thoughts that always come to mind. So I'd, I'd be really curious to get your reaction to those. Yeah, I, I don't know about the appeal part of it. Um, I don't know if it's happened before. It certainly seems unusual to me, um, especially in light of how USL was handled completely differently, completely differently. Um, they had, I don't know what it ended up being. Um, you know, they, they go in, they have a number of problems for second division status. It's not immediately denied. They give, were given 30 days to cure. Um, and no answer comes for, I don't know, what was it? 120 days, 130 days, whatever. More, more than Um, that. (laughs) Um, and you know, how, how can they not have concern about what their business is going to be next year? They seem to just go about their business like it was a fait accompli and there was no problem there. Um, while having numerous, numerous waiver requests, um, and, and those issues are still going on with, um, was it Swope Park? Now that the, you know they're being forced out of their solution for a stadium, um, and you know I'm not criticizing USL. What I'm saying is there are issues, very real, profound issues in second division soccer in this country, third division soccer. There are a lot of problems that need to be fixed, um, and you have people that are willing to work on them. Maybe they have different business philosophies and don't want to work together on it, but but can collectively help improve second division soccer and give more American players opportunities. Um, but when you're just shutting one down and, and only working with the other, I think you're, you're narrowing your bandwidth, which is exactly the opposite of what they should be doing. Um, and then the second thought I'd say is it kind of goes to Rocco's first letter to Carlos Cordero about this infusion of cash that he wants to contribute himself and to help raise. And, and that's good governance. Um, I don't know that there's always good governance in U.S. soccer and with the board and with how these decisions are made, who's making them, is the board informed, um, you know, are the committees fair and objective. Uh, th- those things all have to be looked at. They all have to be analyzed. Um, and, and things shouldn't be rife with um, conflicts of interest and there should be good governance because um, I think we've seen that having one or two people making all the decisions has led us to a situation where a lot of the women are very disgruntled on how they've been handled over the last five years, six years or longer, and the men didn't qualify for the World Cup or the last two Olympics. Uh, And that seems to be clear, compelling failure of what the federation is supposed to be doing. Have you noticed that nobody, uh, nobody combats the the statements when when people say that U.S. soccer's decisions have been made by one or two people? I've never seen anybody come back with evidence against that, or even or even try to fight that. Like everybody kind of just, um, you know, puts their hands up, and be like, "Yep, Sunil and Don have just been running the show. They've been steering the ship forever." And, and nobody nobody provides anything against that. Uh, yeah, well, I don't know what you would say. I mean, it's clearly true. Um, 
so what do you what do you, you can't argue um you'd just be making making stuff up yeah uh, and i guess it's just an observation and, on my part <laughs> yeah well there's a lot that we could talk about where the issues aren't discussed it's uh who can yell louder than the other person who can type on twitter in all capitals um <laughs> you know it that none of that's productive in my mind and there are a lot of good ideas and you know we're talking about a business that is failing at at every angle second division soccer you cannot make money there's no money in tv it's actually a massive operating expense and you don't make money in youth development transfer market none of that exists and those are two pillars of revenue for second division in the rest of the world particularly transfer fees if you can't develop players and make money off of young players then you're going to have an american national team with major holes in it like we have now um and that we don't have enough depth at our key positions and if you're going to look at who the future of our national team is on the men's side uh, they're players playing in Europe, like Pulisic and McKenney and others. Uh, th- those are very real problems, and they, they stem from a weak foundation because on the grassroots level, um, everything's driven by pay-to-play, and the smaller clubs are not investing in players and in, in seeing a return on that investment. With you not being a soccer guy, and, and I say that because you you said it earlier, and um, when you come into the into the picture in, in 2008, and you kind of get your first experience dealing with you know, the transfer market on on the soccer side of things, when did you realize that the youth transfer market or the 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 lack of you know transfer market really in the United States was as big a problem as it is? Uh, a long time ago, from very, very early on when I was promoted into the managing director position with Red Bull. Because if you want to look at who's doing it the best in the United States with youth development, it's Red Bull. Um, and it was in its infancy stage when I started. Um, and everybody explained it to me. Jeff explained it to me. This is, this is what we're trying to accomplish. This is what we're doing with our training and development program, which by by the way, is a massive success at Red Bull. I think they're grossing something like more than $7 million a year doing training and development programs, um, which in a lot of ways is a feeder system into the academy. The academy is not pay-to-play. It's free. And they have gone about identifying some of the best talent, young talent in the United States, helped develop it, and now they're playing for the first team. So that model was, was explained to me very early on. Um, and what I've tried to do, not being a soccer guy, is learn and, and accept it for what it is. And this is the way it works and not argue and say, well, you know, in America, in basketball, we have AAU and college basketball and all that's free. And why do we have to pay for players? Um, for Red Bull, it's part of a global football system. So investing in that makes sense for them, um, and it's taken time, but it's now bearing fruit, and it'd be hard to argue that anyone's doing it better than them. Um, and then when we 
started at the Cosmos, Gio and I, and we're sort of laying out what we're going to do. The Academy was part of it because we used to we get used to get stick for this, but we'd say we want to develop a proper club, and to have a what we defined as a proper club was a, a true academy. You don't pay uh, the players don't pay, and they develop through the system, and they end up in a re- very critical age group, 16, 17, 18, playing in a competitive environment where they're turning pro and then ultimately with the first team. And, and that's really why we did Cosmos B first four years ago in the NPSL is to have that transition period. Now, much of what the pillars of what we were trying to do have been broken down for one reason or another. Um, but I've been at two very unique situations, which is Red Bull and the Cosmos. But if you want to look around the rest of MLS in the United States, it doesn't make a lot of sense for uh, a lot of these organizations to be investing in youth players because they're not getting a, a return on that investment. It costs them millions of dollars a year, at least hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, um, and, and they're not getting any return back for it. Unlike if you're a if you're I don't know Celtic for example who's no longer a threat in the European Championship, but it you have to be effective in the transfer market or you're not going to survive. Um, then you know the, then you know you have to make it work. So if that's ultimately a revenue stream, then you're going to make it work. I think a lot of owners in the United States are looking at it like why why are we doing an academy it's costing us this we're getting nothing back we now have a reserve team that we have to fund nobody's going to those games uh we don't have any sponsors tv costs us money for that um and and so it you know they're starting i think to question youth development in a lot of ways that i think in the long term is going to be very costly for our national team one question that that came to mind while you were while you were talking just now is something that I've seen brought up multiple times, um, you know, especially on Twitter, but people say, why, why don't you just do, do the business the way that you want to do the business? Like what's stopping you from doing that? So if you, if you frame that question in regards to the youth transfer market, what's stopping Cosmos from participating in the global transfer market specifically? Is, is there, is well, there the something that's global transfer market everywhere in the world is driven by the first division. And oftentimes it's driven by the first division within their own league. So Celta Vigo lives on being able to sell players up to Real Madrid. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that's right, but that's how they stay afloat. Um, it's not necessarily good that everybody in the first division is feeding two teams at the top. I'm not arguing for that. I'm, what I'm saying, though, is there is a transfer market. It's driven by the valuations are, are established by the top of the, the pyramid. Um, and they drive the market, and, it, and then it trickles down. Um, none of that exists in this country. MLS does not pay transfer fees down to second division teams. They, they simply don't do it. I got in an argument on Twitter with some people um, and it, you know, they, they point out three people, which by the way, I was involved in all three transfers, three players that were sold from second division to MLS 
over the last five years. Uh, and they're the, they're the only ones. They're the only ones that you can come up with examples of. And um, the money is so tiny. It, it, it's not how you could operate your business. Uh, so, I mean, that's just the, the, the two or three exceptions that prove exactly what I'm saying. And, you know, some people that don't understand it are going to say, well, why don't you just sell players to Mexico or to Europe or, or whatever? Well, Mexico has rules about international players, where they're from, how old they are. Um, and let's be honest, there is a stigma about American players in American leagues around the world. Um, and recent transfers haven't helped that. Brexit, Josie Altador, going into, what was it, Sunderland? You know, those were some pretty big uh, failures of, of American players. And the people I talk to now say, we're better off finding these, these guys at 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. If they're under 18 and they have a European passport, let's get them to Schalke or Dortmund or wherever as soon as possible. Um, if they're over 18, let's wait until they turn 18. Um, and there is no, there's no transfer fees with most of that, if not all of it, uh, or co training compensation or solidarity payments. Um, and so there, there is no market. The, the Europe isn't watching the NASL. MLS isn't watching the NASL. Um, and so if people aren't aware of, of these players or the potential of these players and teams aren't investing in young players trying to develop them because they know no one's watching, then it's just going to turn into, well, we can put 11 guys on the field and it's minor league baseball. People don't care what the result is. They're going to take their kids, have a, you know, a hot dog and a soda and go home. Um, that's back to my, you know, what I think are very real concerns about development of players in this country. I, I want to ask, and and I have to be open with you about this too. I have like five more minutes left because I have another phone call scheduled. Um, and, and I definitely, I, Eric, if you, if you're down, I would love to do a round two with you because I think we could touch on so much more. Um, but I, I, I want to ask you specifically if there's something that prevents American teams from participating in the global transfer market, regardless as if there's interest or, 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 you know things like that from from teams abroad but is there something in place specifically that prevents teams uh like say you know joe schmo's youth club team in florida from from participating in the global transfer market uh, well u.s soccer has always said to all clubs including on the state level in youth organizations that um there is a ruling a court ruling that i that I don't believe anyone's ever seen that makes it illegal to accept solidarity payments or, or developmental fees. Now I might be getting that wrong. I'm not a lawyer and that's a case that's ongoing that I'm not involved in. Um, but that's how things have been explained to me in the past. Um, so, uh, you know, getting compensation for a, a youth player that goes to Europe um, at 17, let's say, 
to my knowledge, that's, that's not happening right now. Um, and so that forces the pay to play model. And I'll say two things about pay to play. You can't expect uh, a bunch of volunteers to put all their time into stuff, lose money on it and get nothing in return. And everybody gets to play and there's no money flowing anywhere. Um, that's just com- completely unrealistic in, you know, that's rec league soccer that's run by the YMCA or whatever. Um, and not that there's anything wrong with that. It's great for the, um, uh, for the sport and people learning to love it, but that's not the top tier that, that we're talking about that, that needs to get better in this country. Um, now I'm losing my train of thought. I've been rambling for so long <laughs> with you. I'm sorry. Um, so yeah, I just I, I think the on the on the well the other thing is uh, you you know you can't expect a um, a pay to play organization to actually get compensation if they charged somebody for the player's development for five years. So if my son I don't have a son but if my son's playing soccer from ten to fifteen in some club and I'm paying. $7,500 a year and he can then make the move somewhere, whether it's to Europe or wherever, I wouldn't think that club would be owed anything because I paid for his education, his soccer education. Um, so these things are not easy to resolve. Um, and I don't mean to paint it as easy. I'm just pointing out some challenges and hopefully providing some solutions. I think one thing that that I I can take away from my conversation with Rishi is something that you kind of just mentioned right now is that it might not be easy and we might have things in place that that are good, you know, like or or have good intentions, but what Rishi said is that sometimes good enough is isn't good enough and so bringing new ideas or exploring, you know, different ideas or or you know, wanting something better shouldn't be vilified and and that's in a lot of ways, I feel like how Rocco's been painted. He's been he's been painted as 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 like a villain, and only because he's he's questioning a lot of things. He's bringing he's bringing a lot of things to the table or new ideas or or he, he's a new voice in a in a sea of voices that have been the same for you know two three four decades whatever however long these these guys have been involved in in U.S. soccer maybe four decades is too long, um, but. I, I don't think that the the idea of solidarity payments and, and being able to participate in the transfer market should be vilified. And in a lot of ways it, it kinda has. And and it's a it's a huge yeah, bummer. Yeah. You know, I think this and I, I, I keep coming back to Twitter, which should just throw my phone <laughs> away. But um you know, I, I said let's not lose the forest for the trees with these issues. The, the, these are you know, three or four fundamental things that aren't actually that complicated. It may be difficult to start changing, but the issues aren't that complicated. Can we just focus on those and and not get distracted by by other things? Because at the end of the day, it's not good enough. It, you know, to not qualify out of CONCACAF is inexcusable for the United States. And I don't want to hear that, oh, we hit the post and it had gone in, we would have qualified. We should finish first or second by a long way every cycle. And, you know, it's not apples to oranges to compare it, but Iceland went about uh, 
figuring out how they had to compete. And they qualified out of Europe, which unquestionably is more difficult than CONCACAF. And it's a tiny, tiny country. So these things are, are fixable. Um, and you're 100% right. Rocco should be applauded and not criticized and vilified because there is no owner in this sport, in this country, that cares more about this, this sport. Full stop. I, I worked in MLS. I was on the, I was a Red Bull uh, representative on the Board of Governors. And I'm not saying that MLS owners don't care. I'm just saying nobody cares about the sport of soccer more than Rocco and is willing to put his money where his mouth is. What he's proposing, he will never see a return on that investment in his lifetime. It's not possible, but he wants to help fix it. And he has ideas. And in a lot of ways, he has what's more important, the money to start to, to address these things. And, and it is in soccer's best interest the federation's best interest to engage with him and talk to him about these things and start working on things that will make things better. Uh, because I just can't see how the system we have right now, aside from a handful of teams like Red Bull that are doing it really well, is going to turn out the players that we need to win the world cup. And, and we're not talking about just qualifying to actually winning the world cup to going into a match in who knows where Holland against Germany in a world cup semifinal or a world cup final and having a realistic chance to win. Germany has five players at every position that are as good as Christian Pulisic or better. We have Christian Pulisic. We need to have depth. We need to have options. We need to have three, four, five guys at every position that are competing desperately uh, to be on that A squad of the national team. Um, and we're not anywhere close to that right now. That just goes back to being being good isn't good enough. Like, okay, you know, our guys might be good, but in order to hit that next level of, like you said, you know, winning a World Cup, we're nowhere near good enough. It needs It needs to be better. And having guys like you and like Rocco and, and you know, a handful of others that are really pushing – us to go in that direction is to me uh, it's like a breath of fresh air almost uh but it's a breath of fresh air in a in a land that's so polluted with you know unbreathable air <laughs> for, for, for uh, a weird analogy i guess uh, uh, you know i i don't want to be so hypercritical and everything it sounds like i've been complaining a lot now i'm replaying things in my head no not at all um, yeah, I, I, you know, I want us to be optimistic about where it's going. And it, it's certainly for us, it's been a difficult couple of years in the situation we've been in. And um, we feel like we have to fight for everything. I, you know, this country has so much potential. People love the sport. Um, they're, they're following the Premier League and La Liga and the Bundesliga. Um, you know, I just hope that our domestic club system is something that more people are going to start to care about and that our national team can be more competitive and that we don't lose progress on the, on the women's side because the rest of the world is getting better. Um, and you know, maybe Carlos Cordero can help us all with that. I guess it, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, Eric, are you down to do a round two sometime soon? <laughs> yeah, you let me know. Um, <laughs> 
I feel like I've been prattling on a long time. Hopefully, uh, people listen through all of this. No, for but, sure. Uh, yeah, whenever you want to pick my tiny little brain, let me know. <laughs> no, and, and one thing I want to make sure I say too is that through our our off the record conversations, you've always you've always provided both sides of the story. So you do have experience working with MLS and, and working in, in other capacities. And then you do have this unique experience you've had with Cosmos and you've always done a good job of explaining both sides to me. And I feel like that's very important for people to know. And it's not something that I mentioned earlier in the podcast and I probably should have. And maybe that's something that we can get into next time. And I, I do want to pick apart Rocco's letters to Carlos Cordero and us soccer uh, with you, because I feel like you would provide that unique uh, perspective of being able to kind of tell the story from both sides. And so I feel like that would be very valuable to have right now in this um, kind of this this very, I don't know how to describe this uh, landscape that we have now, but it's very cluttered with all kinds of different opinions. And I think yours are very clear from both sides is maybe the best way to put it. Well, you let me know. You want to talk about it again? I'm happy to do it. And, uh, and I really appreciate the position you've taken, I, you know, again, back to Twitter, but um, <laughs> there, there's a lot more dialogue and discussion about these things. And uh, sometimes there are lightning rod issues. And, um, I, you know, I hope my approach to, to life, and I think we all need to do this more, is, is to, to listen more than you speak today on this, <laughs> this interview. Um <laughs> bad example of that um but yeah i don't know that there's enough civility in in our world and everybody yells at each other now and um you know i don't think we're that far apart on the philosophies of soccer in this country everybody wants the same thing um you know hopefully we we get some more unique voices in there that maybe have ideas to to actually fix it Absolutely. Um, all right. So we'll, we'll, we'll wrap today's call and I'll send you i I'll probably send you a text message later to see if you can have an off the record conversation letter later today. Cause I have something else <laughs> I want to talk to you about as well. <laughs> okay. You let me know. I'm always, always around for the Croatian guy. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 Podcast. And thank you to Eric Stover for coming on the show and for telling his story. I hope that you guys enjoyed it. I think Eric has a very unique perspective, and I'm very thankful that he is willing to come on and share what he knows and what he sees from his point of view. I think it's important. Uh, if you are looking for more episodes of the 343 Podcast, you can find all of that at 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 343coaching, all spelled out, .com. And while you are there, you can find more information about our coaching education program. To learn more about that coaching education program or to hear a little bit about that coaching education program, here is Tom Beyer to tell his experience with that program. And I can tell you, after someone who's done a lot of coaches' education, both as a student and as an instructor, that you will learn more by watching one or two of their videos that you might learn on any full-time course. 
because the, the one thing that I like about what they're presenting is, again, it's simplicity. It's very simple. It's not a lot of, you know, complicated words. It makes sense. And it goes right directly to the heart of, of, of the game on, on, on how, to, how to develop, um, not just, you know, individual players, but develop teams as well. So to find information about that program and everything that 343 has to offer, you can visit 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 343coaching, all spelled out, dot com. All right, once again, thank you for listening, and we will catch you next time here on the 343 Podcast.